Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today virtually on my phone screen is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hey, Nathan. Hi, everyone. I wanted to start off today by telling a short story. It's the morning of March 20th, 1995, and a 48-year-old man named Ikuo Hayashi is sitting on a train car on the Chiyoda line of the Tokyo Metropolitan Subway. Hayashi is the son of a doctor and a doctor himself. He had specialized in heart and artery medicine, and had devoted much of his studies and his professional career to trying to keep people healthy and alive, to keep blood flowing through the human body as efficiently and as orderly as the Tokyo subway system moved trains through the tunnels under the city. However, by March 20th, 1995, Hayashi had resigned his position as the head of circulatory medicine at the National Sanatorium Hospital in the village of Tokai, and he was no longer interested in keeping hearts and arteries healthy. Instead, At his feet on the floor of the subway is a rolled-up newspaper. Hidden in that newspaper is a sealed plastic bag. And inside the sealed plastic bag is a weapon of mass destruction, a deadly nerve agent called sarin that, if inhaled, would seize up and destroy all of those intricate workings of the human body that Hayashi had previously spent so much time studying and treating. At this moment, there's a young woman sitting across from Hayashi, And Hayashi is hoping that she gets off the subway car at the next stop, because otherwise she is going to die. She is going to die because Hayashi is carrying an umbrella with a sharpened tip, and he is about to stab that tip through the rolled-up newspaper, through the plastic bag, and release the deadly sarin gas into the subway car. Why would he do that? Why was someone who had devoted so much of his life to trying to keep people alive about to perform an action that was designed to cause mass deaths? And why, at that exact same moment, were four other men about to do the exact same thing in other subway cars? I remember watching this on TV, and I remember how awful this news was. And it, it really made me feel quite vulnerable, especially living in a city. Before we went on air, you were joking that we're just trying to get through our day. And we rely on other people to uh, go along with that. And, and, and it's really scary when somebody takes it upon themselves to do something so unprovoked and so unpredictable to a group of innocent people who are just trying to get through their day. I didn't realize, though, quite the effect this had on me until almost a decade later. Maybe it was actually more than a decade later. And I'm in a Toronto subway. And something has gone wrong, and we're stuck at a station for ages. And at some point, people start making motions as though they're smelling something. And then very quickly, there was this weird contagion of fear where we all just got the heck off the subway train because we didn't want to be the victims of something. And I think we were all in a state of generalized fear and anxiety from just the geopolitical news that was coming at us every day. Looking back on it, the um, historical reference for me was the sarin gas attack of the uh, Tokyo subway. That is the thought that came into my mind. And I'm like, I'm going to get out of here because I don't want that to happen to me. So even more than a decade later, that news story had stuck with me and was resonating with me because it was just such an awful, scary thing. 
Well, particularly anytime something is a combination of the everyday and the horrific. Like the everyday being in a, like mass transit, being on a subway, something that you might not even think anything about. So to associate something as horrifying as a nerve gas attack with something so familiar causes in us, I think, a certain kind of, of horror. And we, and we need an explanation for why that happened. And of course, we do have one. The short explanation is that all five men were in a cult called Om Shinrikyo, and the guru of that cult had ordered them to do this. But of course, we're never here for the short explanations. So on today's episode, we're going to do a deep dive into this event. And we're going to have to start by having a discussion on what the word cult means. Now, this is an area that you have studied like a great deal. I have studied this so much that I may actually be quite useless in this conversation because that does um, happen with academics. Became, yeah, uh, this became an absolute fixation for me in my undergraduate, and it followed me to the end of my PhD career, where I was trying to figure out essentially one thing, which is what the heck is a religion? And it was about year three in my undergrad studies when a teacher of Buddhism defined religion and at the same time showed us how difficult that concept was to define. And I was hooked. And in a way, I spent the next, ooh, I don't know, <laughs> 10 years, 12 years trying to answer that question and the related questions to it. So you're going to have to kind of discipline me, Nathan, not to get too far off track here, because I I have my dissertation dangerously close behind me, and I am itching just to pull it off the shelf and start reading things out loud to our yeah, audience. Yeah, he's but pointing at it right now in a very threatening manner. <laughs> like, don't, I'm not going to push him on this. I think he could do it. But let me, let me give you, I think, one of the best definitions I ever came up with for the difference between a religion and a cult. And it, 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 it is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think there is something really important in it. A religion is what the parents do, and a cult is what their kids do. Oh, that's interesting. So sort of the new emerging ideas that don't have the history behind them, that don't have sort of the established acceptability behind them. Exactly. And so what you discover is that actually in the history of religions, most things that we call religions today start out as things that today we would recognize as cults. The transformation from cult to religion is really societal acceptance. And in a sense, I, I'm trying to say this without upsetting anyone, but a kind of domesticity with the ideas. So there's this transition from a cult being a kind of ideology for marginalized groups uh, or groups who are somehow on the margins of political economic society. And that transition of that thought an ideology becoming mainstream. So this is, I guess, a, a, a really roundabout way of trying to talk about the fact that religions are really social things. I know that we experience them very much as individual, and that's a, a particularly modern way of experiencing religion, but as an individual confession, I guess. You know, this is my belief. But really religion, to understand it fully, is a social phenomenon. Uh, much like language, it requires other speakers in order for it to exist. Um, and so you can have personal spiritualities, but you have to have a religion is by definition a social thing. And how social it is, I guess, really depend, really is the marker between if it's considered a cult by society 
or whether it's accepted as a religion. So already you can see how careful we're trying to be with language here. And, and I think that that makes sense because words carry power. We have to be careful in the way that we use words. Referring to a group as a cult shouldn't be taken lightly, since that could be used as a way for someone in a position of power who gets to dictate how words are assigned, that could be used to like invalidate or dismiss the perspectives or beliefs of a group that wasn't part of the, the mainstream conversation. And, and in, in addition, like you say, it's a little tricky to tell the difference between a cult and a religion or any other group that shares a belief system for that matter. Like you said, a lot of established religions started off being what would have been considered a cult. Uh, you and I are academics, and academics are often accused of being in a big academic cult. An argument could be made that whatever like economic ideology or society belongs to, you belong to that cult, since that ideology shapes all of your thoughts, perceptions, and actions. I mean, in a sense, we're in the cult of capitalism. Some people might be in the cult of communism. For these reasons and others, uh, the idea of cult is sort of a problematic one. And there's been a movement in the last few decades to use the phrase new religious movement instead of cult. However, I'm going to argue that while the word cult can be misused, the phrase new religious movement is too broad and would include groups that were so different from each other in belief and in actions that the phrase would basically not be useful at all. What we need to do instead is have a helpful working definition of cult so that it can only be applied in those cases where the term is useful, descriptive, and I would say demonstrably justified. Because the real world is messy and complicated and rarely conforms to the definitions that we try to impose on it, uh, this definition that we'll use, we're going to put on a spectrum. So it isn't going to be an on-off switch, like a binary, it totally is a cult, it isn't at all a cult relationship. A group that we're investigating may be a little bit more like a cult, a little bit less like a cult, depending on the degree to which this group matches up with the characteristics we've assigned. So I'm going to give a bunch of characteristics and see what you think about these. Uh, the first thing that I want to do is add a qualifier to the definition of cult that we're using here, and that qualifier is doomsday. doomsday. A doomsday cult has to, as a key component of its belief system, include some kind of imminent and massive apocalypse. Basically, the end of the world has to be just a little bit around the corner. So if a group has that component, I would argue that we would slide that group a little further along the spectrum, away from new religious movement, and towards cult. So what do you think of the first characteristic? I think it's, uh, it's an important distinction. I'll just throw out the word apocalyptic, because within the field of religious studies, that tends to be the word that is associated with these kind of theologies that include an end time in them. Apocalyptic and eschatological, which is Ooh. more the theology of the end times. And I'm sorry, this is where I get horribly bogged down in, in precisely the terminology. What is the difference? Because you have in mainstream Christianity, you have very explicitly uh, notions of the end time. You have a book of revelations, you have the, the notion of the second coming. And so I still think that one of the pieces that is really differentiating the cult from the mainstream religious approach to some of these ideas is the degree to which that's taken seriously. Maybe So again, like you're talking about a spectrum, it's sort of an emphasis. Even if the end times is part of religions as such, it seems to be often the point of the cult, the focal point. We are, you know, hunkering down for the end time that's coming next week. 
you know, and we've got the guns and we've got the, the food to survive the, the coming apocalypse. So I, I totally agree, uh, Nathan, but I'm just sort of trying to just put the emphasis on the fact that we take this very seriously and we will act on it. And I think also the imminence, that's a crucial aspect. Not someday there will be an end of times, but there is going to be an end of times any second now, or even specifically on this day, basically in our lifetime. I think that's something that makes a difference too. When that end times changes from something that is off in the distance and will happen eventually to something that is about to happen right now. Oh, that was go. point number one. Yeah, that was point number one. Uh, there's also a specific relationship the leader of a doomsday cult will have with their followers. A new religious movement might have all sorts of different power hierarchies or even no hierarchy at all. Maybe it could be a collective or a direct democracy or something. But for our purposes, a doomsday cult has to have an absolute leader at the top of its hierarchy. There could be seconds in command, there could be lieutenants or sub-commanders in that hierarchy, but ultimately in a doomsday cult, there is one leader at the top of it all with ultimate decision-making power. And I think that if you have a leader like that in your group, that has moved that group further along still on our cult scale. Yes. Um, so I'm just coming, I'm just chiming in to uh, what Nathan is saying in this list. And again, everything is totally correct. The only danger with this list is that it also applies to things that are not cults um, in different contexts. So, for example, when we focus on the leader, there's an interesting difference that actually one of my uh, mentors in religious studies when I first started worked on, and it was the role of the guru in, in many Indian religious traditions, as opposed to things like the role of the institution or the book that you might be more familiar with uh, if you, like me, grew up in a Western tradition, Christianity is uh, an exemplary point. So often what you will have, and maybe we've, we're more familiar with this now, with ashrams that have gurus inside them, you have actually this embodiment of the religious tradition within a person. And that is often, certainly when I was in my, in the 90s when I was younger and I was into this stuff, my parents were quite worried that I was part of a cult because there's this religious movement that they were not particularly familiar with wasn't institutionalized the way churches are with, you know, special texts, breaks and stuff like that. And there was this guy, this leader at the top of it, and we kind of treated him pretty special. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was God or a God, but it was quite similar to this notion of a priest where this is my link to that. So, Certainly, if we look at things, and we'll, I'm sure, come to speak on other examples of modern-day cult and cult leaders like David Koresh or uh, who's that guy from Heaven's Gate? Marshall Applewhite. Okay, and, and, and uh, 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 Jim Jones from uh, Jonestown Massacre, I guess it could be called. Those really exemplify the cultish aspect, as we're trying to hive off that term, that cultish aspect of these leaders and yet, the, just the notion of having a religious leader as such, uh, again, it seems uh, to be kind see, of a question of emphasis. That's why we have so many categories and why we talk about it being a spectrum. So at the end right, of exactly. all of these categories, maybe we can ask the question, was Lee in a cult in the 1990s? Yeah, exactly. 
because you're right. I think the point here being on a spectrum and, and interpreting these in terms of how committed are we to what the leader says? Like, I, I never had that sense that if the guru told me to do something that I was fundamentally morally against, I didn't think like I was going to go through doing something like that. Now, that never came up, but that was a that was a kind of a relationship, I think, that you would see in a cult where it is more of this kind of unquestioned, if you're part of this group, then you're just going to shut up and do what we tell you to. Also, in the group that you were in, did they have an imminent doomsday that was just around the corner? No. Oh, okay. So you see, so according to no, even the first it was... two, it's still not that <laughs> far along the cult scale. So good news no, for your parents. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> right. Now, and here's something specific about the leader. You talked about kind of the, the quality that the leader might have. Here's the next. This is number three. That leader also needs to have a compelling reason why they are elevated above everyone else. And that reason involves the way that they receive knowledge and information important to the beliefs and activities of the cult. Here's how it works. There are a few ways in which we ordinarily build knowledge. We might use logic and reason or mathematics. We might use observation, experience, intuition. But these forms of knowledge are open to everyone and are mostly forms of knowledge in which you have to show your work. None of these would provide the leader with that special quality that a cult leader requires to be at the top of their pyramid. The cult leader needs to have received their knowledge in a way that nobody can replicate, question, or challenge. That means it must be revealed knowledge that has come to them directly through some kind of supernatural entity, be that entity a god or an alien or a ghost, a spirit, some undefined force. Because the leader's knowledge has to come directly from that supernatural force, it can't be questioned, which means that the leader can't be questioned. Since the leader is the representative or even the earthly embodiment of that supernatural force, the leader's knowledge comes from an infallible place and everything the leader says must be true, even if it contradicts something else the leader said earlier. That means anyone who goes against the word of the leader is against the supernatural entity as well and is therefore an unbeliever or a heretic or a blasphemer. If the leader of a group claims to have this sort of revealed knowledge and that they alone are the mouthpiece for that knowledge... I would argue that that group slides further along the cult scale. Yeah, I have little to add to that. I think we're really getting into that dangerous territory where you give up autonomy of your own thought process and the um, responsibility for taking, you know, for the for the consequences. And it now, you now kind of abdicate is the word I'm looking for that responsibility to the leader. And I do think that's where things get really scary. Exactly. Because the way that knowledge is then used on the followers is important. And now we get to number four. In a doomsday cult, the revealed knowledge must become the basis for all other aspects of the followers' lives. And it must be the answer to all questions the followers have about anything. It is the truth, and it is the only truth. Anything that goes against that one truth must be by definition, therefore, be a lie. In fact, the entire world outside of the leader's word isn't based on the leader's revealed knowledge— and so then the entire world outside is therefore a lie and possibly a deliberate trick being played by evil forces that are actively trying to conceal the leader's truth. For this reason, information has to be tightly controlled to prevent the corruption and lies of the outside world from infecting the pure minds of the group members. Or to put it another way, to make sure information that runs counter to the leader's word doesn't reach the eyes and ears of the followers, possibly causing them to doubt the infallibility of the leader. Yeah, now it's because now we're starting, uh, we started with terms that were quite general and applicable to 
religion or other forms of um, religious expression. I think now we're getting into what defines the relationship within the cult that makes it more cultish as opposed to how these other systems work. Again, I can see parallels in some ways to non-religious groupings. I mean, I think, for example, and I've never been part of it, and in fact, I've never even talked to anybody within a group like this, but if I imagine one of those small elite Navy SEAL outfits, I don't think there's a lot of room there to question orders and... Uh, but you're, they're missing a lot of the other parts that you're talking about. It's not a doomsday thing. The leader is, I mean, there might be a leader of that group, but then on the whole, there's a much larger uh, governing structure in which they're embedded. And yeah, I think we're really starting to define the relationship of leader and cult members that really makes this as kind of a special, a special kind of outfit. So are you getting more comfortable with this with this definition as we sort of build on it? Because at first you were thinking, this is a bit too broad, but I feel like we're, we're starting to get you to yes. a place now where you think maybe this is a useful definition. Yeah, no, I definitely think, especially for the modern cults, the ones that we've sort of very briefly just hinted at, like Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, I think this is really starting to articulate what's what is the key here. I'm always very suspicious talking about terms and religion because we are dealing with so many different people and cultures over such vast periods of time, these groupings change over time. And what we're really trying to articulate is the modern phenomenon of these, if I can be a little bit blunt about it, these kind of religious scam organizations. Right. I, if I, I mean, I'm just putting my cards on the table. Like I don't, you know, like these these groups that where there's one leader who tells the, somebody in the group to go kill a bunch of innocent people, and before that, you know, give me all your stuff, and that's the only way to get to heaven or enlightenment. It's it's a scam. That is sort of this modern phenomenon that we're trying to define. And that exact idea brings us to the next category. Uh, This kind of worldview that we're discussing that insists on being the only truth and insists on explaining all aspects of life is called totalism, since it tries to dominate the totality of experience and existence. Obviously, knowledge is power, and totalist knowledge creates total power within that system. Any system in which the leader is unquestionable and whose proclamations affect every aspect of the follower's lives is one in which exploitation becomes extremely likely, if not inevitable. If a group has a power structure in which the followers are exploited either financially, sexually, or economically for the benefit of the leader, and there are strict guidelines in place that control all aspects of the followers' lives but don't apply to the leader in the same way, then I would say we would nudge that group even further along our cult spectrometer. Yes. (laughs) I I like how you're getting more and more confident as you go along. Yep. Yep. Uh, Well, especially because... The first definition is not qualified by the later ones. And now this definition is part of the last four, I think, or potentially five, sorry, that that you've given. And now, so yes, I'm getting more comfortable with the whole enterprise. (laughs) And finally, in order for a hierarchy based on a revealed knowledge totalist belief system to avoid collapsing due to inconsistencies or failed prophecies or clearly observable facts that go against what the leader has said, there needs to be something that psychologist Robert J. Lifton refers to as the thought-terminating cliché. 
This is a phrase that gives the followers an easily remembered justification for anything they experience that seems to go against the leader's vision. Now, of course, you'll remember we saw a classic example of this when we examined the QAnon movement. Anytime a prediction from Q didn't come true, which was most of the time, the thought-terminating cliché of trust, trust the, plan, the, plan, trust the, plan, trust the plan, plan would immediately start to circulate in the community in order to try to interrupt any thoughts that perhaps the information coming from Q wasn't 100% accurate. Yes. And I think one of the mistakes that we tend to make, and by we, <laughs> very broadly accusing everybody, within the Western tradition who maybe comes from even if you're not yourself from a Christian tradition, but the emphasis within Christianity on orthodoxy or correct belief is actually a pretty weird part of religion that's not as consistently important throughout different traditions as it, you, one might assume. And so as we are talking, as Nathan is talking about the role of belief here, that might be a more pliable and flexible concepts, not as though everybody in a cult is necessarily a hardcore fundamentalist believer. It may also be that some people within the cult have found themselves in a way ideologically or maybe even physically stuck. And you kind of just go along with it, even if that ends up being really horrific at the end, which is often, of course, not even clear throughout your journey uh, on the cult. So, oh yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I in, flag... in the same way that uh, we have a spectrum of cults which are more or less cultish, we also have a spectrum of people within these organizations who may be more or less committed to these ideas. I will say that I think that the thought terminating cliche is helpful to those people who are, do find their their beliefs may be flagging because you can just return to it as kind of a comforting mantra. Yeah. It's, uh, and interestingly, it's just actually often part of what we consider today mainstream theology too, you know, doubt is the devil's instrument, right? So just the mere notion that you should doubt needs to be cut off at the root um, in a lot of religious traditions, ones that I have in the past been involved in. So what we have now is if a group has a ticking doomsday clock that is running out of time, a leader calling all the shots who receives knowledge through supernatural revelation and refuses all and any other interpretations or, or perspectives. The followers are exploited to benefit the leader. The entire system is protected with a thought terminating cliche. Then I'm going to argue that that group is very far along our spectrum and deserves, in that case, the title of doomsday cult. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is a definition that we can use to try to understand this idea of cult. Yeah, certainly if you're not intending to write a PhD dissertation on the topic, I think we've, <laughs> we've really got a working definition for the rest of the podcast. Yes. Now, of course, I have to say, even within that fairly narrow and specific definition, there's still a lot of room for significant differences. Uh, for example, within the category of doomsday prophecy, there are two subcategories. In one subcategory, we have the groups that believe that the apocalypse is imminent and unavoidable and simply needs to be waited for. However, there's another subcategory. The group believes that they have an active role to play in the bringing about of the apocalypse. Now, this act is referred to as forcing the end. And as you would probably expect, a doomsday group that is waiting for the end will be very different from one that is forcing the end. Yeah, this is not exactly an example from a cult, but one that I found quite interesting was uh, the phenomenon of 
raising a red heifer. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you've heard of this. Yep. So I, I, I'm not sure where in the New Testament uh, the end time is. There are supposed to be signs. I think that might be um, Old Testament because isn't that within Judaism? Is it Old Testament? Okay. Somewhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sorry. Somewhere in the Bible. Uh, there, you get signs for how you know the end time is coming, and one of them is that there will be a uh, a cow that is born red. And apparently there are farmers in the United States who are engaged in breeding projects to try and bring about the red heifer because their reasoning goes that since that is the sign of the apocalypse, if they make that sign, the apocalypse will come. See, those, um, those farmers are forcing the end. Those farmers are forcing the end, or trying to. Now that we have built a definition of cult and discussed cults in general, we can start to investigate Am Shinrikyo in particular. So to do that, we first need to look at the general historical context in which this group arises. It it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that a doomsday cult would show up in Japan in the second half of the 20th century, because perhaps more than most other countries, Japan had already experienced a kind of apocalypse halfway through that century. By the end of World War II, almost one million civilians had been killed by American bombers raining death. Japanese cities were largely constructed of flammable materials such as wood, and the American bombs being dropped on those cities were specifically engineered to cause as much fire as possible. By the end of the war, over 8 million Japanese people were homeless. In addition, of course, two Japanese cities were transformed into radioactive ash and shadows through the use of a new horrifying weapon, the atomic bomb. By the end of the war, the Japanese economy was destroyed after starting the war as one of the largest economies in the world. Before the war, the soul of Japan was personified and manifested in the, in the human form of Emperor Hirohito. As emperor, he was implicitly considered to be an Arahitogami, or god in human form. As such, he had the divine right to rule Japan, and doing the will of the emperor, even to the point of dying in a kamikaze suicide attack, was one's duty to Japan and to the gods. Of course, again, in reality, there would have been many varied motivations for Japanese men to sign up to become kamikaze pilots, but the official position was that you would become a guardian spirit for sacrificing your own life for the sacred emperor. But the war would end for Japan in 1945, when Emperor Hirohito went on the radio to broadcast a Japanese surrender. And I didn't realize this, but it was the first time the general population had even been allowed to hear his voice. And then by 1947, the Japanese constitution was changed under the supervision of an American general named Douglas MacArthur so that the emperor was no longer considered a god in human form. That was enshrined in their constitution. So within less than a decade, Japanese culture had seen total devastation in its military, infrastructure, economy, humans, cities, and even spirituality. In addition, being the only country so far to have had nuclear weapons used against it, obviously hung heavily over the Japanese psyche, and it showed up a lot in pop culture. Uh, 1954's Gojira, for example, in which nuclear testing wakes up a giant monster that then crushes Japanese cities with fire and radioactivity. Or the countless 1970s and 80s anime about nuclear destruction and the end of the world. A good example of those would be something like uh, space battleship Yamato. This might be a good time for me to just zoom the camera back a little bit. Um, Nathan is totally right to identify the relationship between a kind of apocalyptic doomsday cult and what's going on in the rest of the world. And I mean, I feel like my position in this podcast has become horribly predictable 
because I'm always coming with like, yes, but it's happened before over and over again. And you can look at the history of apocalyptic thought like you can look at the history of conspiratorial thought more generally and see it almost as a barometer of what's happening politically inside that culture. In preparation for this podcast, uh, in doing my research, I was reminded that the book of Revelations, which ends the New Testament Bible, and it is an apocalyptic book. It's about the end times. It's about uh, how the world will end. It is written in the first century CE. So, you know, the dates and the stuff isn't always exact. And I'm going to give you a rough date of around between 70 and 80 CE. This is a time in Jerusalem of rampant apocalyptic thought. The century before and the century after the time of Jesus is a time in Jerusalem uh, in that area where there's a lot of apocalyptic thought. And you can look politically to see why that's the case. Rome is now in charge of Jerusalem. They're running the show. Um, it doesn't look good, uh, depending on what group you are, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing again in medieval Europe. And of course, I'm just using representative examples. You can find this throughout cultures, throughout history. But in medieval Europe, when things are really bad, are so late medieval Europe, when you have the Great Famine, and then you have the onset of the plague, the Black Death, which for the next three, 400 years ravages Western Europe, where there are towns and villages that completely disappear from the map. They, they just no longer exist because everybody died. Routinely, something between one-third and one-half of the population of major cities, Barcelona, Madrid, other places, are decimated. I mean, they're just, you know, one-third. And it, the thing that I didn't realize about the plague the first time I learned about it is that it wasn't a one-time event. It would visit your city every 10, 15 years. And the same thing would happen. You know, again, another third of your population would disappear. Now, when you are brought up in a religious tradition that tells you there's an interventionist God who's acting in history and there will be signs of the end times, seeing everybody in your town die of some horrific disease sure starts to look like the end is coming. And you can see uh, apocalyptic cults just explode. You can see the fascination with death, with the end time, with uh, millenarian thought, eschatological visions. All of this stuff goes absolutely haywire in the 13-1400s in Europe. And so to Nathan's point, and again, I mean, there's a lot of other historical examples that come later, but to Nathan's point, often these tend, from a sociological perspective, tend to be reactions of groups who see themselves under threat. Now, that doesn't even need to be all of society. You could have been a Roman in Jerusalem and you're like, everything's fine, I'm feeling great. But you could have been a, a, a member of a marginalized group, an oppressed group, and you think to yourself, well, this is going really badly. I can't see how this is going to continue much longer. This is probably the end. We better prepare for it. In a way, there's a bit of prepper survivalist mentality in, in a lot of these groups going way back. So to start this discussion of a doomsday cult of the 80s and 90s that harkens back to absolute utter devastation, I mean, nuclear bombs are really... They are the end of the world in a way. And if 
And, and and I have no idea what that would be like being somebody who experienced that or living in a, cul- a country and culture where that is part of the history, this people who disappear in a couple of days as a result of these attacks. So there is this relationship between how popular and how many of these cults there are and what's going on broader in that political system. It's so interesting the way that history works, because on the one hand, we're talking about an organization that shows up at a specific time in a specific place. And so to understand it, we have to understand the specific events and the specific context in which that shows up. And they are totally specific to that moment in time in that place. But then we find that when we look at those specific moments and contexts, that we see echoes of them in other times in history in the devastation of plagues and wars and things like that. So at the same time, it's like everything is always new and nothing is ever new. I I got nothing there, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting very deep over here. By the 1980s, the Japanese economy was the second largest in the world. A massive worldwide market for fuel-efficient and reliable Japanese cars and for Japanese-made electronics had resulted in immense economic growth. But demographically, Japan was still facing a potential disaster with falling birth rates and an aging population. And runaway capitalism and consumer goods weren't necessarily providing much to fill a spiritual void and sense of meaninglessness that was felt by much of the population. But there was somebody who had a keen interest in filling that void. He was born Chizuo Matsumoto on the Japanese island of Kyushu in 1955. His was a very large family of seven children, and his father's humble salary as a weaver didn't go very far. Because Chizuo was born with infantile glaucoma, he was sent to a school for the blind. However, Chizuo had an advantage over most of the other kids at that school, since he had retained partial vision in his right eye. His teachers remember him as an extremely charismatic speaker, even at that young an age. They also remember that he used his slight advantage to bully and extort the other children at the school, even going so far as to start a rudimentary fight club where the other children would wrestle for his amusement. He also demonstrated an early desire for hierarchical power as he ran for class leader several times. He never won, and after one loss he declared that the election must have been rigged against him, since that was the only way he could imagine that he could have lost. The teacher recalled telling Chuzuo that it was just that the other students didn't really like him. After he graduated from school at 20, he became an acupuncturist and a masseuse. He moved to Tokyo after being charged and convicted of assault, And in 1978, he married a woman named Tomoko, had a baby, and opened up a Chinese medicine store. The store did well until 1982, when he was charged and convicted of selling fake medicine. He went bankrupt and served a short prison sentence. By then, he had also joined a new religious movement called Agonshu, which was fairly successful. It was a sect that had just been granted official religion status by the Japanese government. Agonshu drew from traditional Buddhist beliefs combined with yoga practices. But there was a new age element present as well, and it was while he was with Agonshu that Chuzuo first came across the apocalyptic writings of the French astrologer Nostradamus. In addition, as if all of that wasn't enough, Asahara was also influenced by science fiction, although of course mostly apocalyptic science fiction, or anything that dealt with high-tech futuristic weaponry. By 1984, Chuzuo had left Agonshu with some of his fellow Agonshu members to form his own sect, called at that moment Om Shinsen no Kai. Om is a Sanskrit word that represents the fundamental powers of creation and destruction in the universe, and Shinsen no Kai meant circle of divine hermits. 
He also opened a business called Omcorp, which would take care of the publishing wing of his new movement. In 1985, a photograph of Chizuo levitating was published in a popular occult magazine, which gave him significant publicity and more followers. And by levitating, I mean he was sitting in the lotus position and sort of hopping up and down, and they took a photograph when he was at the apex of his hop. Okay, I, I got to just chime in here with, with a, a bunch of trivia. I remember in Canada, there was an actual election party that did this. It was, I think, in the 92 election. Do you remember this? This sounds really I, familiar. I had the, the natural law party That's in Canada. That's right. And they did the same thing. They would sit in what looked like a traditional meditation pose, full lotus, which if you haven't done it, is kind of uncomfortable and difficult to get into. The advantage, though, is that your legs remain in that kind of cross-legged position, even if you do hop about. And their claim was that in meditating, they would develop a type of spiritual lightness that would fling them into the air. But when you watch them, <laughs> they were just jumping up and down on pillows. I mean, it's like pretty strenuous activity. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't um, do it. Not that high. No. I tried. I tried. It's like, first of all, just full lotus is super uncomfortable and hopping up and down in full lotus is super uncomfortable. Also, in 1985, he announced that he had had a vision in which a god appeared in front of him while he was walking near the ocean. And that God declared that Chizuo was, quote, the God, the God of, light of Light who leads, leads the, the armies, armies of the gods, end quote. Later, he would specify that the God he met on the beach was the Hindi deity Shiva, the God associated with, amongst lots of other things, salvation through world destruction. This was about the time as well that Chizuo Matsumoto changed the name of his sect to Am Shinrikyo and changed his own name to Shoko Asahara, which are two names that would soon become associated with violence, murder, and terror. So now that we have arrived at the creation of Om Shinrikyo, let's apply our doomsday cult spectrum to it and see where it lands. Question one, did their belief system have an imminent doomsday? The answer here is obviously a resounding yes. Asahara, aka Chizuo Matsumoto, drew inspiration for Om's beliefs from a number of different sources, but the thing they all seemed to have in common was an apocalypticism. He took in aspects of Christianity, but mostly from the book of Revelation, which is normally interpreted about being about the end times. He took inspiration from Hinduism, but again, mostly from the idea of Shiva being the destroyer, which is, that's a, like a ridiculous oversimplification of those ideas. And he also took inspiration from Nostradamus's predictions regarding the end of the world. Asahara made, though, what I would call a rookie cult leader mistake, and actually picked a date for his Armageddon. Apparently, brace yourself, Lee, the world is going to end in a fiery inferno in 1997. That's actually later than I would have assumed, given yeah. that he's active in 1985. 80, uh, again, I, I, I hearken back to a doomsday cult we haven't actually talked about yet on the episode, or well, we brought it up, which is Heaven's Gate. And what I found interesting there is that uh, the Heaven's Gate leader kept making predictions, and they kept turning out to be wrong. Spoiler alert. But then he just made another one, and it seemed to go on quite fine. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always a question that people have. What do you do when your doomsday doesn't arrive? And the answer to that is a very complicated one. For um, like a more elaborate answer to that, I recommend listening to our episode on the day the world didn't end. 
Question, so the answer to question one, yes, imminent doomsday. Question number two, was there a leader with absolute power? Absolutely there was. Asahara was called the master and literally had control over the life and death of his followers. He was the founder, the guru, the leader of Om. He had final say in all matters. This is pretty clear if you watch the anime that Om put out that depict Asahara as an all-powerful benevolent god figure, or if you read interviews with former Om members, most of whom even like after all of this occurred, still referred to Asahara as the master. Even after leaving Om, a lot of the former followers were incapable of referring to him as anything other than the master. Question three, was the leader's power based on the leader having divinely revealed knowledge? Yes. Asahara claimed to have personal contact with Shiva and would later claim to be Christ himself. His visions and dreams were instrumental in developing the sacred knowledge of the group. He was the only one in the group who had achieved full enlightenment. He had become, in the words of Om, a victor of truth. What evidence did Asahara have that he had achieved full enlightenment? Well, as someone who had achieved full enlightenment, he was qualified to assess his level of enlightenment, and he assessed it as full. Amongst logicians, that's referred to as a circular argument. There were other lower levels of enlightenment, and Asahara was the one who decided where everyone fit into those. Apparently, according to former AM members, having an education from Tokyo University or being an attractive woman would contribute to how enlightened you were. Number four, did that revealed knowledge create a power structure that exploited the followers? Yes. People had to pay as much as 300,000 yen for 10 cassette tapes of Asahara's voice. I did the math to figure out how much that would have been in Canadian dollars back in the 1990s, then figured out how much that would be in today's currency. And it worked out to be like too much for 10 cassette tapes, basically. This part... The, the, you know, when you mentioned the levels, and now when you're mentioning the money, it reminds me of not a doomsday cult, but another cult, uh, which operates very much in this way, which is Scientology. Yeah. Uh, this notion that there are levels that you will pass through, and the way it works in Scientology is you pay money to take a course to get to the next level. And of course, things get really expensive and people have lost their life savings trying to become what is an orc number two or number three. I think you can get up to number nine, but only the I think only the leader is at number nine. Like, But by the time you've gotten to level six, you've spent so much money, you've got to get to level seven at that point. Otherwise, well, all that money was that's wasted. In, that's, that's the thing. That is what is really interesting about that kind of structure is that it actually cons you into believing. You yourself con yourself into believing because once you have paid money for it and eh, the results are marginal, like they always are, eh, you pay more money. But somebody like you isn't an idiot. So this can't be totally wrong. I mean, you wouldn't pay money for something that's totally bogus. And so you keep going and the more you do it, and there, the name of this fallacy escapes me, but it is the again sunk one of these. cost fallacy. Thank you. Uh, it's the same reason we value our university I... careers. <laughs> Ooh, that was too close to home. Ouch. I knew getting a PhD was going to burn me on this episode, given how much I brought it up. But it's also why I'm always I'm so reluctant to move from one grocery line to another, even though that other grocery line is moving and mine isn't. Because you've been standing um, in it. 
yeah. So it, but I found that to be a really powerful mechanism by which people kind of get trapped into these systems of thought. Um, because again, when you approach it as somebody who's not invested in this community from the outside, and you look just at the truth content of this or that claim that they make, it's astounding that people would believe it. But you need to add these layers of entrapment in a way, these kind of ideological shackles, and the, that getting people to pay for systems and levels and, and degrees and belts and whatever rank, essentially, is, 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 pretty, is a pretty powerful mechanism. Absolutely. And so using that mechanism, fo- followers were pressured to donate to Om, to work for free for Om to try to sell books and tapes to people outside of Om. A leader of Asahara's Dirty Bathwater, which you could drink to get special powers apparently, cost about $1,000. A small amount of Asahara's blood, which you could also drink to allegedly get special powers, cost $10,000. In addition, because Asahara's knowledge allowed him to assess and assign how enlightened every Om member was, he could and often did use that bit of power knowledge to coerce followers into carrying out acts, sometimes violent acts, sometimes illegal acts, sometimes sexual acts, in order to raise their official enlightenment level. Uh, Question five, did Om have a sentence that they could repeat to themselves whenever their observations didn't match up with their belief system in order to prevent any questioning of that belief system? In other words, did they have a thought-terminating cliché? They did, and that thought-terminating cliché was, trust Trust the master. master. I mean, and imagine how powerful a thought-terminating cliché like that would be when faced with Uh, inconsistencies and incongruities. But as it turned out, he may not have been a master, and he certainly didn't deserve any trust. Om became fairly successful by 1990. They had branch compounds all over Japan, as well as a main compound near Mount Fuji. There were dormitories, printing presses where they printed off books and manga about how awesome Asahara was, animation facilities where they made anime about how awesome Asahara was, medical facilities, and a large building called Satyam 7 in which ordinary Om members were forbidden to go. Satyam 7 will return in this podcast. Asahara had contacts and supporters in the media and did many interviews in newspapers and made frequent television appearances. Om even had their own radio show by renting airtime from Radio Moscow for an hour every day and then relaying that signal to Japan. On the surface, it appeared that Om was a typical new religious movement offering its members a path to self-improvement. However, what was actually happening was very different. Because behind closed doors, what was actually happening was the group was being driven by a leader whose increasing sense of paranoia, megalomania, and desire for purity were all taking Om Shinrikyo in some very alarming and dangerous directions. For example, a system had been developed by Asahara and some of his medically trained lieutenants to help cleanse followers of any impurities. Those impurities could include sexual urges, or insufficient submissiveness, or wanting to leave Om. The process involved being hung upside down for long periods of time, then being dunked into ice-cold water. An Om Shinrikyo disciple was killed in 1988 during this process. When the disciple's friend, an Om member named Shuji Taguchi, expressed a desire to both leave the group and tell the police what had happened, Asahara ordered the murder of Taguchi, who was then strangled to death by five Om members, including Hideo Murai, who was the chief scientist at Om. In 1989, a lawyer named Tsutsumi Sakamoto was hired by some family members of Om disciples to go after Om Shinrikyo for their brutal methods. During Sakamoto's investigation of Om, the lawyer disappeared, along with his wife Satoko and their 14-month-old baby Tatsuhiko. 
It would be discovered six years later that then-Chief Scientist Murray and three other Om disciples had broken into the Sakamoto residence, attacked the Sakamotos, injected them with potassium chloride, and burned their bodies in separate barrels around the countryside. As violent as things had already gotten, they would get even worse after 1990. That year, Asahara was expecting to sweep into political power in the Japanese national election. Om was running dozens of politicians, but they all faced the same outcome as Asahara himself when he ran for head of the class. The Om candidates barely received a handful of votes. After that embarrassment, Asahara and Om Shinrikyo were going to take the violence up a few notches. Because humiliation is one of the strongest driving forces to retribution, I would say. There's also this phenomenon that we see, I think, in other instances of and I'm using this term a bit technically here, in, in other instances of deviant behavior, that it's, it escalates. You know, it starts out as forcing members to do this or that, and then somebody gets hurt, and, you know, and, and it doesn't start, like, with, a you know, a big killing normally. It, right, you don't kill anybody on your something. first day. Yeah, exactly. And this kind of stuff left unchecked, I think, and I'm vaguely thinking about the work of Philip Zimbardo and the Stanford Prison Experiment and just how powerful playing a role is and how quickly that merges with an identity. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole Philip Zimbardo thing here because it'll derail what we're talking about. But uh, if you don't know the experiment, we brought it up before, um, just go Google it. It's... Uh, college students who are randomly assigned guard and prisoner status in the psych experiment. And the psych experiment goes horribly awry. People get abused. And the whole time, of course, everybody knows that they are neither guard nor prisoner. And yet, all these phenomena emerge, not on the first day, but progressively and actually quite quickly once this kind of sadistic relationship is established. And I wonder if that's part of what's happening here, too, is you have a cult leader who's becoming radicalized, who's, who's drifting towards violence. The members are as well. But it doesn't start, as you say, with murder on the first day. But as this stuff is left unchecked, it's almost also like a sunk cost fallacy. And it's like, well, I've already done this. It's like the expression, the next? in for a penny, in for a pound. That's it. That's well, it. I already hung a guy upside down. I guess murder is the next step. Well, or we already, you know, a guy died accidentally, quote unquote. I mean, I don't know if hanging them upside down and then their subsequent death is actually accidental, but it wasn't a premeditated murder, it doesn't sound like. Mm -hmm. And yet then that happens. Maybe then the next actual premeditated murder is easier to, to do. Yeah, especially if you have motivation and justification behind that violence. And at this point, I think we should pause the story and explore what that motivation and justification is. Uh, to do that, we need to explore the concept of purity rhetoric, which is something that we've come across before and is always something that we're very nervous about and critical of. Because I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to speak for both of us, all three of us, Ellen included. I think our bias is we always start with the assumption that the world and existence in general is a big, complicated, convoluted mess. And that's just something that we have to accept if we want to live in it. Would you agree with that? Yes. My, 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 uh, my children would notice some contradictions here because I constantly berate them about the mess they leave behind. And I'm not always entirely happy with it. But actually, to your point, if I want to have any kind of 
mental balance, I need to accept a certain level of mess and chaos in my life. It's inevitable. And in some ways, that big mess of existence is a great benefit because it allows the immense diversity we see in the natural world and human cultures and individual perspectives and ideas. From a biological standpoint, the big mess is healthy. Like we've said before when we talked about inbred royal families, the healthiest dogs are the mutts. And the dogs with the most health problems are the purebred ones, since they only have one set of grandparents. But purity rhetoric takes that big glorious mess of existence and sees a threat. Rather than embracing the fact that existence is a messy business, purity rhetoric tries to eliminate the mess by replacing it with this concept of purity. The only way you can define purity is by first defining what the contaminants are. For royal families, contaminants would be anyone not related to the royal family. For people breeding Rhodesian Ridgeback puppies, contaminants are any puppies that are born without that weird ridge of hair running the wrong way along their backs. That's why marrying commoners is frowned upon in royal circles to protect the purity of the bloodline, and why any little Rhodesian Ridgeback puppies without backwards hair are often immediately killed by dog breeders to protect the purity of the dog breed. For a doomsday cult, contaminant would be any idea or information that goes against the word of the leader. But Am Shinrikyo took this concept to the next level by stating that anyone who wasn't Asahara was a contaminant that needed to be purified. Since Asahara was perfect, by definition, anyone who wasn't Asahara was imperfect and carried contamination within them. In the Am Shinrikyo belief system, that contamination took the form of bad karma. Asahara was totally enlightened and had pure karma, and everyone else in the world had polluted karma. In particular, since amongst the traditions that Asahara's belief system drew from was, unfortunately, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, he thought much of the bad karma in the world was caused by... Not Jews. Yes. Oh my god. How are Jews a scapegoat even in this story? I mean... Because it's... that's the stuff he was picking up. No. Oh. Uh, and Freemasons. He was also obsessed with Freemasons. Right. Uh, but, I mean, oh, it's... <sighs> it is. I, uh, I, I agree. So this is why Om disciples are paying big money for the privilege of drinking Asahara's bathwater and blood. They were trying to become him. The goal of an Om disciple was to become a clone of Asahara. If the leader was perfect, the only way to achieve perfection was to become him. This is the ultimate example of purity rhetoric. Not only do you have to confine it to your own family, it's just you at this point. You are the only one that is pure. Now, there's a number of ways to become a clone. Complete obedience was one, which contributed to the overall exploitation of the Am Disciples by Asahara. Uh, disciples could also use a device called the Perfect Salvation Initiation, or PSI. It was like an electric hat. You'd wear it, and it would allegedly transfer Asahara's brainwaves into you. Uh, disciples went through a treatment in which Asahara's recorded voice would be played at them for hours through headphones, while images were simultaneously flashed before their eyes, and they were given LSD. What does this sound like to you? It sounds like MKUltra, or, or some of the stuff that was going on specifically in Montreal. It, it sounds like, what was the therapy called? And I put therapy here under really... Um, psychic driving. Psychic driving. There you go. It sounds like psychic driving. By Dr. Uh, Donald Ewan Cameron, who is, I think, mm. one of the real monsters that we've come across when we've been doing these podcasts. Yeah. It won't be a surprise to you that one of Asahara's doctors actually had read the work of Donald Ewan Cameron. It's like they were just gathering up some of the worst ideas on earth 
and putting them together into one belief system. So disciples were required to do this every day, this MKUltra style psychic driving, in order to burn away the polluted information they'd received from the outside world and replace it with the pure thoughts of Asahara. Of course, most of the world didn't have access to these techniques and technologies, so what could be done for them? The answer comes from Asahara's twisted interpretation of a Tibetan Buddhist concept called Poa. Now, historically, Poa is a fairly obscure idea in which an enlightened master is able to, at the time of death, transfer their consciousness directly from the earth plane of existence straight to the after-death plane without having to spend any time in that awkward, annoying, in-between place. But the way that Asahara interpreted this idea, and I can't stress enough that this is his interpretation, not the actual meaning of it, is that by killing someone else, you not only prevent them from continued pollution of the world through their corrupted ideas, but you save them from continuing to accumulate bad karma in their own souls. Basically, by killing them in the name of purity, you have done the world and that person murdered a big favor. It, it reminds me almost of the witch hunts. You know, the kind of ideology that this is not something that we're doing because we're sadistic or whatever, but but because this is needed to be done, this needs to be done in order to purify our community. And we're certainly saving ourselves, if not potentially the witch who is our victim. You've got to be um, cruel to be kind. Again, as you say, nothing, nothing new under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a pretty extreme version of it, but yeah, of course, this is something that we've seen over and over again, and it always comes from that purity rhetoric. We have to murder in order to protect. Uh, here's an example of how this belief would work. There was a woman that uh, I'll refer to as Disciple A. Now, her son Hideaki was a member of Om, and when Disciple A was suffering from some health issues, her son convinced her to join Om for treatment in 1991. After joining Om, she was being treated by being immersed in boiling water, listening to Asahara's lectures, and wearing the PSI electric hat to transfer Asahara's thoughts into her brain. This treatment was unsurprisingly unsuccessful, but Asahara did convince Disciple A to donate about $450,000 of her own money to Om. After a few years of this, a former Om member and friend of Disciple A named Kotaro Ochida became worried about her and convinced Disciple A's son, Hideaki, to help him break her out of the group. So one night, Ochida and Hideaki snuck into the medical facilities to find her, but were caught by Om members. The two men were taken to Asahara, who told Hideaki that, in order to reduce his bad karma for being part of this plot, he needed to strangle Ochida to death with a rope in front of Asahara. In other words, Hideaki needed to poa Ochida which he then did, although he testified in court years later that he couldn't look in Ochida's eyes as he murdered him. But Poa wasn't just a way to maintain internal discipline. In order to prevent the accumulation of bad karma in the world, everyone who wasn't Asahara or a clone of Asahara had to be killed. But how do you go about that? Well, remember I mentioned that large building earlier that ordinary disciples weren't allowed to go into, Satyam 7. That's what Satyam 7 was for. It housed the Am Shinrikyo Chemical and Biological Weapons Labs. It was disguised as a shrine with large statues at the door of Shiva and the Buddha. But inside, Am scientists were working on weapons of mass destruction to be unleashed in a massive poa on the general public. Asahar's fascination with science fiction also led him to order the production of some truly bizarre weapon systems. Uh, death rays, plasma weapons, microwave beams... 
Asaharak claimed that a, a powerful space laser could literally melt the air directly below it, making it appear as though a massive glowing white sword had descended from the heavens. And Asaharak claimed that this weapon was mentioned in the book of Revelation in the Bible. This combination of biblical prophecy and science fiction imagery gives a good example, I think, of how Asahara borrowed from many areas and traditions to produce his end-of-time vision. And, of course, Asahara was also interested in nuclear weapons. And here's, even by this episode's standards, here's a crazy story. In 1993, Amshin Rikyo bought a 500,000-acre cattle ranch in Australia called Banjawarn Station. They used the ranch to set up a large laboratory and to mine uranium, one of the key components in a nuclear warhead. At that same time, high-ranking AM members visited Russia in an attempt to buy nuclear warheads. According to a U.S. Senate investigation, AM also managed to recruit two Russian nuclear scientists. On May 28th of 1993, there was an enormous explosion near the ranch, later calculated to have been the equivalent of 2,000 tons of high explosives. The few long-haul truckers and gold prospectors who were in the area reported seeing a massive fireball. As of 2021, there has been no explanation for that explosion. A large meteor would have left a crater, and an earthquake wouldn't have caused the fireball. So, my question is this. What happened at that ranch on May 28th, 1993? That's unbelievable. Yeah, I couldn't... Like, I, I was looking through New York Times reports from the from that time period and everyone just seemed baffled it's like what could have caused this massive explosion i'm not saying that um shinrikyo set off a nuclear device in australia but i am saying that they were absolutely trying to come up with nuclear weapons asahara was also interested in more conventional weapons to the point that Am had created their own small factory for the production of ak-47 copies and had also purchased a russian uh, assault helicopter on the black market but the weapon that Am would become known for, of course, was sarin gas, a nerve agent developed in Germany in 1938 as a pesticide. Sarin was weaponized but not used militarily by the German army in World War II. It was later produced as a weapon by the United States and the USSR in the 1950s, and eventually used by Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein in 1988 against the Kurdish city of Halabja, resulting in the deaths of at least 5,000 people. And on June 27, 1994, on a quiet street in the city of Matsumoto, Japan, a converted refrigerator truck was parked. There were three judges living on that street who were currently involved in adjudicating a real estate lawsuit against Am Shinrikyo. At 10.40 a.m., the truck started to pour sarin gas out into the street. By 11.30, casualties had already been taken to the hospital with symptoms ranging from darkened vision to numbness to nausea. Almost 300 people were treated and seven people died. An eighth person fell into a coma and then died 14 years later, having never come out of the coma. The next day, the area was filled with dead dogs, birds, insects, withered plants. Now, Alm wasn't blamed for this attack. A local man whose wife died in the attack was investigated by police. In the meanwhile, the Alm truck was long gone. So once again, innocent people had been murdered for the sake of Asahara's financial benefit, justified by the group by Asahara's interpretation of POA. This concept goes some way to explaining the large amount of doctors that Am was able to recruit. As Dr. Hayashi said in an article in an Am magazine, while, quote, The job of the doctor is to save people. It cannot compare in level or scale to the great master's efforts to save all souls. 
This is how a doctor like Hayashi, who's sworn as a doctor to do no harm, could defend using his medical skills to drug Om disciples with thiopental to use as a kind of truce serum. In early 1995, after a man named Kiyoshi Korea convinced his sister to leave Om, an Om team kidnapped Korea and brought him back to the compound. Hayashi and another doctor named Nakagawa kept the kidnapped man on a thiopental drip while they interrogated him about the location of his sister. Eventually, Kayoshi Korea overdosed on the drug and died, after which Hayoshi used thiopental and shock treatments on the kidnap team so that they would lose their memories of the incident. But Korea had left a note for friends stating, if I disappear, I was abducted by Am Shinrikyo. This note brought some serious police attention onto the group. Later, prosecutors would argue that Asahara had contacts in the police department who tipped him off about this police investigation. And feeling as though the circle was beginning to tighten around him, Asahara decided it was time to force the end, to bring about the Armageddon that would result in the world being cleansed of impurities and pollution. By the time the fires went out and the dust settled, the only beings left would be Asahara and the Asahara clones. The world would be purged of bad karma, and all that would be left would be a collection of enlightened masters, all sharing the same mind and brainwaves. And that brings us back to Akuo Hayashi sitting on a Tokyo subway car with his plastic bag of sarin and his sharpened umbrella. The plan was to launch a massive sarin attack on the Tokyo subway system, in the hopes that the Japanese government would blame, of course, the Jews and the Freemasons that Asahara believed were in charge of the United States. The countries would then go to war, the entire world would be caught up in it, and Asahara felt pretty sure that Am Shinrikyo would be the only ones to survive, thanks in part to their karmic purity, but also thanks to the promises made to him by his medical scientists that they would be able to grow new limbs and organs if necessary. The attack itself was terrible. All five Am disciples punctured their sarin packages with their sharpened umbrellas and then fled the subways for the safety of the Am compound. By the end of the day, 13 people who were expecting to have an average day were dead. Thousands were injured, many of them badly so. Uh, unfortunately, we often spend more time on the, on the perpetrators of terrible acts than the victims. So I highly recommend Haruki Murakami's book, Underground, in which he interviews dozens of people who were on the Tokyo subway that day. They all tell the story of the particular kind of horror that emerges when a normal day turns into a nightmare. And particularly heartbreaking are the accounts by the family members of people who were killed or who suffered severe brain damage by the nerve agent. After the attack, Asahara told his followers that the whole thing was a frame-up and that it was evil outsiders trying to frame Om for the attacks. But when the police raided Satcham 7 and found evidence that Om was manufacturing meth, LSD, anthrax, Ebola, and sarin, the gig was pretty much up. They had enough biological and chemical weapons to kill 4 million people. Several people who were being held against their will were liberated from Om jail cells. And even then, many of Asahara's followers believed him when he said that the police had planted all the evidence. For a while, the violence continued. On March 30, 1995, the chief of the National Police Agency in Japan was shot four times but survived. On May 16th, a letter bomb sent by Om arrived at the office of Yukio Aoshima, the governor of Tokyo, and blew the fingers off of his secretary's hand. That same day, Asahara was found hiding in a fake wall in one of the Am buildings, surrounded by money and covered in his own filth. He was taken into custody and charged with 23 counts of murder. Also arrested were Asahara's seconds in command, including Nakagama and Hayashi. Asahara's chief scientist Hideo Murai wasn't arrested because he had been stabbed to death in a crowd in front of Am headquarters by a Yakuza assassin a few weeks after the subway attack. After the trials, which took seven years to complete, 
13 members of An Shirikyo were sentenced to be executed. Asahara himself was hanged on July 6, 2018, having failed to bring about the end of the world. Are there any reports from members about, I guess once the leader dies, there really is a reckoning, or maybe not, but has there been any accounts of the former members who have recanted, who have seen the error of their ways? Have they given reflections on what happened to them, how they got there? There were some people who recanted in, like, on the witness dock, basically. Some people who were charged with murder. Again, a reference of the work of Murakami, who interviewed, in addition to people who were in the subway, he interviewed a lot of AM members, and he asked them this question. And there was this extraordinary cognitive dissonance that was clear in a lot of people, that they had, they were forced to have two ideas in their head at the same time, and those two ideas couldn't exist together. On the one hand, they still believed that Asahara was some kind of divine master who was perfect and pure. And on the other hand, they had to reckon with the fact that Asahara had clearly ordered this attack, that he was wrong about the end of the world, and that the things that he was asking people to do were wildly unethical and unjustified by any reasonable religious belief. It's, it's almost, a, in a weird way, it's almost a credit to the human brain that we can hold two ideas that are that oppositional, and we can sort of hold on to them at the same time. I guess we all sort of do that to a degree. Like if you smoke cigarettes, every time you're smoking a cigarette, you know that cigarette is killing you, and you know you're smoking that cigarette. Yeah, that was going to be sort of my question to conclude our uh, predictably quite dark and... and, and um, This was a rough one. ...scary episode. But beyond, I think one of the dangers, I guess, for me, when learning about a group like Om Shinrikyo is that it seems like, okay, you know, uh, stuff happens. Uh, there's a lot of us out there, and some of us do stupid things. It's hard to really make that applicable to anything that's happening in my life, particularly, or the stuff that I'm seeing around me. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm setting it up that way, but of course, uh, I didn't spend however many <laughs> years trying to figure this stuff out because I didn't think that there was anything relevant. In fact, I think that there's a lot here that bleeds into conspiracies as such. I think conspiratorial thinking as such. In my research, I wrote in my notes somewhere that apocalyptic religious thought seems to be a kind of a primary or template for the modern secular conspiracies, which seem to really, you know, map onto these earlier, now, Om Shinriki isn't earlier, but, you know, these kind of like traditional religious ideologies. And that's true of conspiratorial thinking. I wonder, though, to what extent... This isn't also true, uh, well, or if there aren't salient lessons here for the way we tend to become um, seduced by bad ideas, I guess. Well, I'm, I mean, this is such an important idea because you might ask a question, who, who could have been in a group like that? And the answer, of course, is any of us. Any of us could mm -hmm. have been in that group. This is the sort of thing that could happen to anybody. There are certain life events that might make you more susceptible but ultimately, if you have a human brain, you could get caught up in a group like that. And something that Murakami said after he had done all these interviews, 
he said, the danger in sort of dismissing the, the ridiculous story that these people believed about purity and Asahara being this sort of holy figure and all these other things, the danger in dismissing those stories is we have to ask ourselves, what is the story that we're replacing it with? And that, I think, is where we often fall down. Because unless you can come up with a story that, that fulfills some of those same needs, you're never going to be able to get people away from a, a person like Asahara who's providing that story to them. <laughs> 